Hi, this is Chris Teague, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey Ben, how's it going? It's going super awesome. We, uh, we had a week or two off there, didn't we? We did. We had a little hiatus. How was it for you? We had our corporate retreat. We uh, we went to Antarctica. <laughs> we had some team building. We did we did some trust falls in Antarctica at the team building uh, corporate retreat. We were, we were. <laughs> so, Ilya, who is on the show today? Uh, Chris Teague is on the show. Chris Teague, awesome, awesome dude. Currently, if we weren't doing this show, I would still be talking about only murders in the building. I'm current on all the episodes they've released on Hulu so far. Just an amazing show with, you know, Steve Martin, Martin Short, national treasures. It's it's just so original and fresh and also just kind of playing off of their fun chemistry together. It's, it's such a good show. Did you get to talk about uh, Glow at all by chance? We talked a little bit about, well, uh, you'll, you'll have to listen to the interview. Uh, we, we, we talked a bit about Glow. We talked a bit about Russian Doll. I wish we'd gotten more deep into some of that stuff. But he's got a really interesting career. Uh, Obvious Child kind of broke him out. That was a big Sundance hit mm. uh, in about 2014. And uh, he's really killing it. Like, if you look at some of the stuff he's done, he's done some amazing TV work. And uh, again, if, if you haven't seen Only Murders in the Building, I don't even know what more I could say to encourage everyone on Earth to uh, watch that show. Uh, side note about Only Murders in the Building, uh, one of the writers on it, uh, or one of the executive producers slash writers, is a guy who I used to be in the art department with on uh, commercials in Florida, a dude named Kirker Butler. You know, that, that just goes to show that you, you, you never know. You never know. You never know who's going to be doing what next. Yeah. Well, I mean, Kirker's been killing it for a long time. He was a writer on Family Guy and on the Cleveland show, and he's really got a, an impressive resume. But uh, I dropped but him an email. back when you were in the art department? You know, that, 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 no, that no, was the career that trajectory. He would, that he would right. go on to write a thing that Steve Martin and Martin Short would star in, and that I would uh, be co-hosting a podcast about cinematography. Both of those would have been completely unpredictable <laughs> to everyone who knew both of us at the time. All right. Well, uh, Ben, why don't we get straight to the interview? With Chris Teague. Here's Chris. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so I am here today bi coastally with Chris Teague, the DP of Only Murders in the Building, the amazing show. It's on Hulu. And by the time this episode drops, you will be able to start watching season two. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Chris. Sure, yeah. Thanks for thanks for having me. Before we talk about your past career, which is awesome, I, I, I want to jump into only murders in the building because it's got such a specific tone. You know, it's a whodunit. It's a classic whodunit in some ways. It's a comedy in some ways, but it's also super dark at times. Like it, it goes into some pretty dark places. And tone wise, I feel like it's quite a balancing act for, for people who haven't seen the show. Could you just pitch the show and kind of talk about how you arrived at, at the tone? 
Yeah, um, it's a good question. I mean, the show is, is everything you said. It's a murder mystery, but it's also a comedy, and it really has a mixture of tones where it, it gets really kind of gruesome at moments and, and very emotional uh, at other moments. But then there's some really wild, ridiculous humor in it, you know, some great bits. And I mean, obviously, you have, you have Martin Short and Steve Martin, who are just phenomenal, legendary performers and very close friends. So you get to kind of take advantage of the amazing energy that they have in the room together. But then you also, I think, get to see a completely new and different side of them where, you know, you see their kind of dramatic chops in the show as well, which I think is a lot of fun. And you get this very cool side of Selena Gomez as the this very dry, witty, like sort of straight person a lot of times in their, their dynamic. So... Yeah, that's one of the things that appealed to me when I read the first script was just how it combined all these different elements and didn't shy away from going really dark when it needed to or really scary. And, and I, I love that about I love that when a show can do all those things. I don't, I don't think you I think you can lean into all that stuff. And I think when you have moments of real drama, it sort of heightens the comedy and vice versa. If you know how to kind of play it right or write it in a way that those two those different moments kind of complement each other. Well, uh, let's talk about that. It's uh, a long-held belief of mine that dark comedy, I don't know that I would necessarily call this a dark comedy, but it's a comedy that has darkness in it, uh, is one of the toughest balances to create because if you go too gross or too morbid, it makes it impossible to laugh at. If you go too silly or farcical, it lowers the stakes and makes nothing scary. And this you have in Steve Martin and Martin Short, especially in Martin Short, kind of a character who's an exaggerated person, but he's like a the kind of exaggerated person you would meet. Like, there are people in the world who are like this, but he's a little kind of a wacky character, uh, you know, a, a theater guy from Broadway who expects a lot of respect out of people on a certain level. And Steve Martin is sort of like that, but maybe a little bit more gra- aware of himself. I don't want to say grounded because I feel like they're all grounded. But like, from a visual standpoint, how do you approach keeping the darkness from undermining the comedy and the comedy from lowering? the stakes of the darkness. Yeah, I, I think it has a lot to do with thinking about each scene on the page and honoring kind of what the essence of that scene is. You know, I think a good example of this is when in the first season, when we see, I mean, I think we can talk about it at this point. It's been out for a while, right? When we see Tim Kono's body on the ground and yeah. you see this, it's, it's one of the most gruesome images in the entire show. And John Hoffman, the showrunner, talked about that at length, that he wanted this to be this deeply affecting image because it has this massive impact on Selena Gomez's character, Mabel, which we aren't aware of at that point. We don't know that they have a history together. So it's important for us to like feel the weight of that moment and understand that it registers with her, but not yet understand what it really means for her. So I think when you talk about it on like a moment to moment level like that, you understand that, OK, this is a point where we can really put push the, the moodiness, the darkness, the kind of gruesome aspect of the show. Um, but then also, I think what's really fun about the show is that it can kind of twist that where it does get into, I think, dark humor when Mabel returns to his apartment and has this conversation, this sort of fantastical conversation with the body of Tim Kono. And he's standing there with like the blood spatter on his face and the the head yeah. wound and everything. And it's funny and strange and poignant and moving all at once. And I mean, it's a testament to the writing. It's a testament to the performers and treating it as, as honestly uh, as possible, both in the way that you shoot it, you know, 
know and and the way you think about the you visualize it and making sure you understand where Mabel's coming from because it is a moment that's more mostly in her mind but despite that it is about it's the what if these two characters could reconnect again who these people who used to be very close to each other what would that feel like so it's it, even though it's dark and gruesome and moody it's also intimate and warm yeah. in a way and it's really cool when you can kind of find all of those things in one scene that's interesting it's a really interesting way to think about it now you have shot all of the episodes of the series correct i shot all the episodes in season one and then in season two i shot six of the ten but then i, I directed episodes seven and eight in in season two which will come out later this summer so while i was uh shooting those and prepping for those uh we had this terrific dp dalmar weaver madsen come in and, and shoot for us and she's someone who's also New York-based, who we've worked with a lot of the same people before and was a great fit for the show. Um, so it was a nice kind of seamless transition having her come on. So on the podcast, we talk to a lot of people who work in TV, and it seems like more and more lately we have one cinematographer for the whole series or a whole season. What was behind the decision to have one cinematographer on the whole season and then on season two, which we can't really talk about spoilers of season two, but you stepping into the director's chair, I'm I'm sure that you had a lot of strong thoughts about the cinematography and in case the DP had any questions, you were there to answer any, any of her questions. Yeah, I mean, for season one, I think it's very common. I mean, it's very common in my experience for when, when you're shooting a half hour show and typically something that falls under the comedy umbrella, it's fairly typical to have one DP shoot the entire season. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, when, if there's a show where you have a lot of standing sets uh, that you're kind of coming back to, you're not doing necessarily a ton of new location scouting, although you always are, or new set builds, and you always are. You have some some new sets and some new locations every episode. Um, it is easier to have one DP shoot all the episodes, and you all do tend to get into a rhythm and terms of workflow and consistency and the lighting and approach that can make your work very efficient and, and kind of you can work at a high level that way. The the challenge I face with that, which is always tough, is after you prep those first two episodes, which you usually shoot in one block, you go on to the rest of the season with very little prep where you and sometimes I, you know, I have the most prep I have with a director is sort of meeting them over lunch one a day or two before they start filming, which is tough because it's it's hard to, you know, build a rapport with a, a director if you haven't worked with them before and kind of understand how they they see the world and great episodic directors who have a lot of experience with that are very good at being kind of clear and concise about what the ma major challenges are or the bit major kind of creative perspective that they have is on their particular episodes and or about you know reaching out about important questions whether it's about equipment or just visual approach so that can help mitigate the issues that you have with not having so much prep and also you know I have this amazing grip electric team John Alcantara with Mike Gaffer and Mike Urich is my key grip and they are so good at staying on top of stuff and just pulling me aside at just the right moment where we're in between a camera setup to talk about a new set that's being built or look at a look over location photos so we're able to have these kind of mini meetings on set in between setups where we can be prepping the next episodes and, and doing so like as efficiently as possible and you know that helps obviously the more you work with people the the more of a shorthand you get into where you can accomplish a lot more in a lot less time uh, and, and I think the advantage to coming back on a second season 
in terms of the look and style of the show is you have this whole season of work to refer back to and to say this scene this shot this really feels like what we're after in terms of the look of the show and but also saying you know this is what we should maybe try to steer away from you know one of the things that's such a challenge shooting in new york city is avoiding all the branding everywhere, all the signage and, and everything. And, and oh, like, you know, we're, we're going for this kind of classic, iconic New York City. And it's not there every direction that you look in. And we don't have a massive VFX budget where we can paint out every, you know, sign that, that's that's on every wall. So it becomes critical that we kind of choose our, our exterior locations carefully to kind of preserve this great version of New York that we love that feels so kind of classic and, uh, you know, and iconic. So having all the, that material from season one to look to, you know, it made it a lot easier for her to come on board and know um, know what the show is. And also she's she comes in backed by a crew who's been doing it for a long time. Luckily, my gaffer and key grip did season one as well. So they're, they're just they really know the look of the show really well and, and know the way we do things. But, you know, at the same time, I with any new director and, and also with a new DP, I, I hate to try to tie anybody's hands. I want them to be familiar with the style of the show, but I, I also want to make sure they have the freedom if they get inspired or get excited about an idea to try to pursue it. And I'm not one of those people that feels like every episode has to feel identical to the next in terms of style. I think there are moments, especially when it's supported by the screenwriting, that need to break the style form or, or you know, need to push the boundaries a little bit and make your audience kind of lean in a little bit more because they're experiencing something different from, from the kind of the, the general standard look of the show. That actually, uh, that's a question that I bring up a lot of times with episodic DPs, which is like when a guest director is on a series and they ask for something that is not sort of in the style guide or, you know, if you don't have a style guide, but just is something that's outside of the realm of how you would tend to do it. They're like, hey, let's put a fisheye lens on. And you're like, eh, you know, fisheye lens or let's do a Dutch angle. Yeah, we're not the Dutch angle show. Like, do you ever step in and whisper in their ear? Do you go to the producer? Do you just say, hey, let's do it the other way so we cover our asses in case we need it the other way. Like, what's the way that, I'm not saying, it's not your job to handle the director, but like, what's your way of sort of guiding the director to make sure that the show feels like the show, even if it is breaking form? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. I think something you have to be very careful with because you don't want to be that collaborator that's kind of just shooting down everybody's ideas that they're excited about. I think when somebody pitches something that doesn't quite feel like it's the style of the show, I try to get to the bottom of what the idea behind the idea is and try to pitch maybe another way to do it that would be more within the style of the show. It's it's tough when you're collaborating with somebody to just say, no, we don't do that. No, we don't do that. If, if you're saying, I don't think this will work, you know, you always want to have another option or another solution to pitch, particularly when you're working at such a fast pace. It's, you know, you're, you're most effective as a collaborator if you're steering things in a specific direction instead of just saying, no, we can't. You know, I think it's all about how you phrase things. And, and again, I think it's all, it's always about getting to the bottom of, okay, you, you like the, the energy of that shot, but maybe we can do it instead of handheld because we're not really a handheld show. Maybe there is the way to do it on a dolly that still feels fast and energetic. Or if we shift the blocking so there's more movement to it, maybe the camera will move more and give you that kind of dynamism and energy that you're after without having to go handheld, which we tend to reserve for very specific moments in the show, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 
No, that's good to know. And you mentioned that it's like it's a 30 minute show, so you're on a shorter schedule and you maybe have less prep. But I would say it's not a 30 minute show that feels it doesn't feel like you didn't have time to prep. It feels it's it's going for a very cinematic look and feel. And it feels like the camera could go anywhere. I'm assuming that the apartments and stuff are sets that you guys own and can do whatever you want. But it doesn't feel locked up or constrained in any way. So does that create challenges for you in terms of keeping the scope of the show as open as it is, but also having limited prep or having, uh, I don't know how many days you have to shoot an episode, but, you know, I'm assuming less than you would have for an hour. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we shoot in two episode blocks, so we and we have, and they're, they're 13 days typically, so it's about six and a half days per episode. And I, I've definitely done shows with less days per episode than that. But it's yeah. still, the time goes quickly, and, and particularly with our show, we, we try to move as quickly as possible. I mean, we do this with any show, but you try to move as quickly as possible without sacrificing anything on the visual side. And as you get to know the show better and get to work, your team gets kind of dialed in better. You can be super efficient and very fast um, and make things that look great. And when you have these sets that were meticulously planned out and have space to work and, you know, that you become very familiar with, it's very cool. We can do, we have, you know, we'll have a day where we have a big dialogue scene and it's a lot of coverage and it's a lot of pieces. And then, you know, maybe we'll end our day with a few quarter page or eighth page scenes that are just kind of feel like interstitial moments. But those are the moments where we can often do really cool visual stuff, particularly if we're working in our standing sets where we can do some steady cam work or some dolly work that's really creative and really add something to the show. And it's incredible what we can cook up the director and the camera operator and I kind of on a moment's notice and build on the dolly or however in a very short amount of time and light and make look amazing when it's one of these like one shot scenes or something like that you know because we, those sets we've, we've dialed in so well and we have so much control over them and we all work sort of in tandem with each other where I, sometimes when I'm working with John my gaffer I have very little to say to him you know and he just kind of knows where we're going with the lighting you know I talk we talk about maybe where the key the direction of the key light is going to be and what kind of the quality is going to be and he goes off and starts working on it and then and then we'll maybe have a second conversation about specifics of what that's going to look like and because we've done the show you know two seasons now it's most more often the case than not where it just um, I say go ahead and run with it like we're where you know what I'm looking for and we have the the, the, the look down so that's a good way to keep things moving efficiently. Um, I think another thing that's important with the show, because we are, you know, those apartments are sets, uh, two things. One is, you know, when we first designed the sets, we made this big decision to put ceilings everywhere, which is always a little bit scary as a DP because you're you're removing this entire pathway of lighting, you know, for yourself. And, uh, you know, it feels like, oh, am I, am I going to be kicking myself halfway down down the season, you know, when I when I literally boxed myself into this, this set. But I really couldn't have been happier with that decision because when you do that, you start to think about it more as like a real location. And I have this thing where when I feel like a light is coming from too high up, but unless it's a very specifically designed top light or something like that, if I have a, if it's coming from that a high angle where that feels like it's kind of off in a corner, it just immediately screams stage lighting to me. So the, the idea that we're kind of closing off that option to ourselves, I think is a good thing and really helps the naturalism of the show. And, you know, so you, you are working more like it's a real location, but you have this amazing advantage of having full control over daylight and you know this, yeah. this structure of lighting outside the windows that you can raise and lower you can dim up and dim down and shape 
quite quite a lot and and so you know you're able to get something that feels feels pretty natural even though it's a set um not get too stuck now in terms of working with this cast just a phenomenal cast top to bottom uh including sting i love sting's funky uh it's more than a cameo and less than a co-star but yeah, it was just yeah. fun the, to see the, uh, there's a moment we were shooting with sting if i can just jump in it was just makes me laugh Please. every time i think about it which is when uh we're shooting with him in his apartment and you know there's a there's a scripted bit where he gets up and he improvises a song and it's a pretty it's a ridiculous song it's you know it kind of falls flat and our, our trio's reaction is to be like oh that it, it, it doesn't really work you should keep working on that you know more or less and as we're shooting Steve and Marty and Selena's reaction to this, you know, Sting has already sung the song a hundred times. So he gets bored. So he starts singing his greatest hits. And so not only are we getting like a live performance from Sting, but at the end, whenever he finishes his song, you see Steve, Marty and Selena go do their line from the scripted scene, which is, oh, yeah, no, I don't think that works very well. <laughs> it's, it's one of those like gifts of, of being on set when you're, you're working with such talented people, that especially as a, as a DP, you get to do all this like really hard, really stressful work. And then you sit down on the monitor and you get to watch them do their thing, you know, and, and you get to see something, you know, the audience doesn't get to see where you you see the iterations of things. You see the comedy get shaped and develop from like take one to take five. And, you know, you see yeah. how these pros can can like find their way into it or, or bring something new to it, you know, in every take. And that's that's such a cool thing to get to watch. Well, that, and that was part of my question, too, is like, I can imagine it going either way with, with especially Steve Martin and Martin Short. Is there a lot of room left open for improvisation or they also both are, you know, pros and can stick to a nailed down script? Is there a bit of both? Like some of it feels, I won't say loose, but it just feels so spontaneous. But that's how they both operate. So, yeah, I mean, they they have such a rapport. I mean, when they come on set, they make us laugh all day long because they you know they get they love to give each other a hard time make fun of each other and it's kind of that dynamic is definitely baked into the script too so there is that energy that's just always alive and, and free but they're not the kind of actors to do like a lot of riffing and improv like in the moment steve is very prepared and, and very sort of studious in the way that he really looks at every scene and he will come into almost every scene with a few pitches for different line readings and it's really fun because he'll often like perform them for the crew and kind Kind of gauge the reaction and feel like okay oh, wow. does this does that does this new line reading or does this slight line change does that get a laugh from from the crew if it does i think we should put it in if not maybe we'll maybe we'll save it or maybe we'll try it both ways you know so you get you get a little window into their process as they're going but they're typically try to work with what's written and and that's in their performance that they kind of find the energy of it or the way that they kind of play off each other or move around the room or and everything that's really interesting. I mean, like a lot of people, I, I feel like I grew up watching Steve Martin and Martin Short in so many movies and TV shows. And it's fascinating to kind of get to how they work, especially from somebody like you who is going to have to have a practical response to to them to make sure that you, you know, you, you get all that work on camera. Yeah, there, there's a moment with Steve that I remember in the first season. It's when they're in Howard Morris's apartment and he finds the, the cat in the freezer and the cat's leg falls out of the freezer 
and he picks it up and he doesn't know what to do with it. And it's one of these moments where, you know, you, you get weirdly, you kind of get used to working with Steve Martin every day and you kind of forget that you're working with Steve Martin. And then you have this shot of him holding this frozen cat leg in his hand <laughs> and dancing around the room and trying to figure out kind of what to do with himself. And I mean, I remember all of us at the monitor, like our minds just exploding because you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm watching this. I'm watching the legend Steve <laughs> Martin right now. Like the, the physical comedy is just so, it's so incredible and so fun. And, and you're like taken back to all the movies, you know, you watched of his when you were a kid. Yeah, I, w- I would have been thinking about kitten juggling from, yeah. uh, was it was it the jerk? That yeah, he did the kitten juggling yeah, 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 totally. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, sort of your origin story. Uh, what was the moment, the first moment that it ever occurred to you that cinematography or that filmmaking was a thing you could do and, and you decided that, that was a thing you were going to pursue on some level? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. There's probably a few different moments. I feel like <laughs> I can think of a time when I was in high school and, a, you know, a friend and I were just joking about what would be a funny story to tell. And he said, why don't we just get your parents' video camera and go start shooting it? And we did. It was just so fun to start, you know, creating a story out of out of nowhere. And, and then, you know, that was the, the inkling of like, oh, OK, because I had always been an avid reader and a writer. And, and I thought that that was an avenue for creativity. But I did photography as well. And so over time and making all these little movies that were really me and my friends messing around to, to kind of make each other laugh, it gave me this idea of, of filmmaking as another form of, of storytelling. And uh, I think it was as I got through undergrad where I'd done a few video production courses, I realized at that point I knew enough to know what I did not know, I guess, if that makes <clears> sense, or how little I knew. And, and I knew that I needed to do something that I wasn't necessarily going to get to where I wanted to be by just scraping money together and just making some shorts. I think I needed a more formal education, and that's why I ended up going to film school at um, Columbia School of the Arts, their their grad program. And I was I was very technically inclined, you know. I, I could I am pretty handy with cameras and, and lighting and stuff, and I had done some work on small productions to kind of learn that stuff. And I chose. Columbia largely because they were very is a very it's a very non-technical program and I knew I was going to be forced out of my comfort zone and and um, put in positions where I'd really be working with actors and and working on my writing and, and working on my visual st- storytelling from a non-technical standpoint and that was very exciting to me and and I think is, is ultimately, even though it was not a, really a path towards cinematography, it, it made me a better cinematographer because I've always come at it, I think, from more of a, a directorial standpoint, which is to say what what's, what's most important about the image is how it helps tell the story. And, and of course, we want to go for something that's beautiful and evocative and powerful um, visually, but at its heart, it needs to support what the what the script is presenting to the audience. Have you found any resources when you say that you, you don't come at it necessarily first and foremost from a cinematography standpoint? Like what are some resources or books or ideas or whatever that you've encountered? Yeah, I mean, I mean, early on, she's when I was, you know, I'm dating myself, but uh, I, there were there really wasn't much in terms of the Internet when I first started making films. So I bought the Filmmaker's Handbook, which 
is such a funny, uh, I don't even, I don't know if it's published anymore, but it is, it is a very kind of massive, dry, technical overview of all the different aspects of filmmaking. And it was kind of, it was amazing for me. You know, I like, I, I read it like it was like a, <laughs> like it was a, a great novel or something. It was just so, so fun to soak up. Um, so there was, there was that kind of stuff. I think learning on set was the best thing for me. You know, I was lucky to being in film school. I got to shoot a ton of people, short films and then crew on the films and things like that and then I would I would get to and being in New York I got to kind of crew on some indies and stuff some non-union stuff and and I would always just really pay attention to what other people were doing and and that would help me be able to kind of try something new but I didn't I had a, I had a, like a, a very kind of cursory and patchwork education in the kind of craft of cinematography I mean luckily from like a lensing standpoint and a composition standpoint I had done photography but I really, the, my understanding of lighting was very intuitive and a bit random, honestly, until I started to work <laughs> on like union projects, which, you know, you have these massive, incredibly experienced crews who have developed all these techniques of working that are kind of foreign to you as like a micro budget filmmaker, because you don't have the the crew or the resources or the equipment that they typically have on their, uh, you know, at their disposal. So a lot of it was me staying humble. And even though I'm managing a gaffer or a key grip, you know, wanting to listen to them and, and learn from them about the different ways that they've rigged a camera to a car or lit a night exterior and, and, and try to understand, you know, how, how that fits like my creative approach and, and what I think is the look for the particular project that I'm doing. Um, so where does Obvious Child fall into this? Because that was the first piece of your work that I was able to see. Yeah. So that falls like toward, let me see, I believe we shot that in 2013. So that's the movie that resonated, I think, the most with with an audience and also sort of led me to joining the union because the Gillian Robespierre, the director uh, and writer of that, uh, also wrote a pilot that I ended up shooting that didn't get picked up, but I, I had to join the union in order to shoot it um, with her. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, I shot, I got hired to shoot another pilot presentation. And then I shot a very small TV show in Chicago. And, and that was sort of my first kind of long term union job. So it was, you know, a few years after Obvious Child that I kind of got more fell into the TV world. But the year it was the year that Obvious Child and this other film Appropriate Behavior went to Sundance was kind of the year where I decided to pursue cinematography full time and set up a bunch of meetings at, at Sundance with agents so I could get representation and, and in the hopes of that kind of leading to a just opening up my network of people basically and opportunities. Yeah, and it's shortly after that that you did is Shrink the Chicago TV series you're talking about? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. What steered you to TV? Because you've done features as well, but you know, so much of your work has been TV, uh, Shrink, Broad City, Russian Doll, Glow. Do you think that it's kind of a hacky question to say which do you prefer, but do you see your career moving mostly in a TV direction? Do you want to get back into doing features? Yeah, it's, I, I really I do want to get back into features. And I am always seeking out as I'm wrapping up another project, I'm trying to find what other what features are, are out there and, and really looking for the right one. It's tricky because I think because of Obvious Child, which is a film I, I'm like I'm very proud of and I, and I love, it's it, in terms of genre, it falls into kind of an indie rom-com territory. And because of that, because it's one of the things that I'm most known for in the feature world, 
that is the majority of scripts that I get sent for for feature opportunities. But I think for me creatively, I'm I'm looking to try to do uh, different you know different genres and different looks and 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 kind of expand things a little bit more. And I've like lucked into a lot of TV series work where the writing and the 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 cast is just fantastic, and it's it's led me to kind of pursue that. But I am I am still always looking for the right feature, but it, it is it's it's trickier. It, the the thing that's hard, you know, that I'm learning this past year or so is um, TV tends to in terms of a prep um, tends to get up and running earlier than features do. So yeah. TV shows will tend to hire before feature uh, feature productions will. So that's the it, it's you if you want to pursue features or at least if I do I I will ha- I have to kind of wait wait it out you know and and let things kind of take their course or, or be willing to kind of miss a few things which which I will you know for the for the right show it's just kind of it's always hard to know what's what's coming up you know what's coming down the pipeline and features are tricky scheduling wise because a lot of times they push or they don't come together or, or, you know, things change significantly about them. So it's a, they're a little bit more of a moving target than TV tends to be. Well, and you're not the only one to mention that TV has limited prep time, but you know, the shows that you're doing like, like specifically Russian doll glow and only murders in the building. Uh, and I haven't seen Mrs. America. Oh wait, I did see Mrs. America. That was amazing. No, uh, like all those shows have feature-like production values to them. Like they're not asking less of an audience. Like if I were to go see any of those in a movie theater, the production value, the kinds of shots, the quality of the lighting, all that stuff is the same. So how do you cram a feature's amount of prep into a shorter period of time on these shows? Which, you know, again, like like these are all kind of uh, Russian Doll, Glow, Mrs. America and Only Murders in the Building are, are all kind of like water cooler shows. People talking about them all the time. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that's that's your response to it. I mean, I think. You know, particularly on on Only Murders and 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 also you know Russian Doll. Like I, I think when you have a great crew behind you, there's a lot that you can do with limited time. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know, and and some of the most recent TV shows I've done, the the level of resources we have in terms of equipment or uh, or crew is just far higher than I've had on on indie films. And and the talent and the experience level, you know, you you've had you have crew who've just you know lit big night exteriors before, and they've done it so many times that you can have a pretty broad strokes conversation about about how you want to light a baseball field at night or some big church in the daytime, and and you know you, there are there are quick but expensive solutions to those problems, which are you know big <laughs> big lights or like balloon lighting or things like that. And when you're, you know, on a on a, a TV show that can afford it, you can get that stuff and and it helps you uh, to be able to shoot quickly and to make things look look really good um, if you know how to use those tools properly and and yeah, yeah. sometimes there's a, there's a learning tur- curve to that for sure but the thing where I would I guess push against what you're saying a little bit is I think what you lack there's a little bit less risk taking in TV I found than than I, I would find in in features and I think partly due to the lack of prep because it's hard to kind of get a bunch of people together to kind of really hash through an idea and and really work out the pros and cons and things and and then go back and then revisit that idea and revisit that idea I think that kind of creative process can be very helpful and and you yield a unique result and I think with with TV there's so many different collaborative entities from show runners to episode directors and, and writers and everything and, and um, producers where there are a lot of great minds like focused on it, 
but you're trying to make sure everybody's voice is being heard in that collaborative group. And what tends to happen there is you, you can sometimes have a, a more kind of a homogenized feel than like a singular singular voice behind behind the thing. I mean, it's it's not always true, but it, it can it can certainly happen that way. And it, it can be a, a voice of a group that's very cool and fun and exciting, particularly if that's a good team who's really in sync together. But I am excited about the next opportunity I can have where I find a director who just has a specific way of seeing the world and and like that's the way that we're kind of gonna pursue you know what i mean and 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 really try to realize well, I think that's an amazing place to leave it. I, I mean, I've, I feel like, you know, we could do an equal deep dive into Russian Doll or Glow. I would want to go back over Mrs. America, which, I, which I've which i seen, um, but like I've uh, been a, a mildly obsessed with Glow and Russian Doll. So, but I think that uh, we should get going. Before we go, though, where can people find you online if they want to see your work, interact with you if you're on social media? If you're not, don't worry about it. Yeah, I think probably watching my work is, is the best way. I, I do post occasionally on Instagram. I haven't been on lately so much. Yeah, I tend to try to let my work speak for itself. And I like I like these opportunities where, you know, I, I can get to talk about the work in, a, in this kind of format. It's always fun. Well, cool. Well, I cannot wait to uh, I've already I, it, it is my appointment viewing to start watching the new season of Only Murders in the Building. And uh, congrats on all the other work that you've done. Thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So that was uh, Chris Teague. Thanks so much for being on the show. I can't wait to see what you uh, do next. Definitely, definitely check out Only Murders in the Building. It's so good. And uh, I hear tell it's predicted to possibly be nominated for some Emmys, maybe for cinematography next week. So, mm-hmm. well, I do know that uh, it's been hotly promoted and I do see billboards, you know, uh, ads, television, Hulu streaming ads for that quite often. Again, Hulu totally killing it. Anyway, yeah. uh, so Ilya, you know what time it is now. I'm stunned. What, what what time is it? Well, it's time for your line about that it's time to pay the bills. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> we got to thank the, the fine people over at Aperture, sponsors of uh, this program. They've got a really cool little light called the 60X. The 60X is a uh, relatively low power, a small, hard light that uh, has a special kit called a Spotlight Mini Zoom, which mm. costs, frankly more than the light but the two items together create a real powerhouse it's a real interesting small unit that has a really high quality optic and all the sort of like uh you know leco cutters and different types of uh, apparatus that you that you'd expect to have but they do it on a real small scale and uh, we've had several people come to the shop and say god i can't believe i would spend $500 on this attachment and the light itself is $419. And I was like, yeah, I know, but that's, that's kind of how they did it. So when you put the two things together though, they create a, a powerful combination and you can split them apart. And it's kind of like getting two different lights in one, once you add the optic in front, but even without the optic, it's a really cool bicolor, hard light. And it comes in at a really aggressive price point. Well, and if you're in the Burbank area and you want to come into hot ride cameras, uh, we've got one set up on display and you're welcome to, to play with it. And if you don't see it, ask someone, I'm sure they'll, they'll make it, you know, they'll make it plain. They'll put it in, uh, you know, right in front of you. Nice. Nice. And now short ends. So, Ilya, it is, it is now time for our uh, patent pending segment, Short Ends, uh, where we talk about our pet obsessions of the week. What is your pet obsession this week? Oh, man. 
Well, I've been staying in a lot of hotels recently, and I'll tell you that uh, something I've never experienced before is the ability for you to use a streaming app from your phone mm. to your hotel television. Have, have, are you aware of this? Have you ever done this before? Uh, not in a hotel, but I've used uh, streaming apps to, uh, you know, like like when I get uh, screeners sometimes for movies or something we're watching, they'll give me something that's specific to my phone. And with the exception of one app, uh, the rest of them will allow me to screencast to my Roku television, which is sometimes not the highest quality way to look at something. Yeah, and no difference here. Um, I would say that the resolution is probably around 720p from this yeah. casting, but that the Hyatt, the where I was staying, every Hyatt I was in, the LG television sets have a function where it's they clearly advertise like Netflix and all the other streaming services, and they're like, watch your streaming services now with your phone. Download this app to cast to our television sets and, you know, Bob's your uncle. You're off to the races. You're you're going to be able to watch all your programs. Now, Bob is my uncle, by the way. I have an uncle Bob. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that's I'm glad that's true. But but here are the two big caveats for this system that they're proposing. One, you're getting the relatively low resolution of the streaming signal coming to your phone and then being cast from your phone to the television set. Uh, audio and, and video seems to be in perfect sync, which is great. But it is a, a relatively, relatively low resolution. It's certainly, you're not watching in 4K and I, I, you're most likely not getting it anywhere close to 1080, at least a good 1080. Yeah, yeah. And so you're, you're subject to all of, all of those things. But number two, and this is a biggie, the television set in every Hyatt that I stayed in has smooth motion turned on that you cannot no. turn off. No. <laughs> you cannot turn it off. And no. believe you me, I've tried. I've thought about getting one of those like, uh, you know, uh, engineer remote controls that allows you to access like the hidden things on certain television sets just so when I'm in the hotel, I can turn off smooth motion. But uh, the thing is, is that I realize now that there are so many people out there who cannot even tell that smooth motion is a thing. Like they cannot see a difference. They they are like, or if you do point out a difference, they don't really know what that is. Wait, but are all those people my dad? Because that just sounds like <laughs> my dad kind of thing. No, uh, some of them are younger generation people. Some are people who just are very casual television viewers, and there are others that just don't care. So this is a massive uphill battle for filmmakers, yeah. for uh, you know content Gross. creators, for for Gross. image makers of all sorts who care very much about the presentation of the the work that they've created. And now it's being reduced to lower resolution and spit out onto a television set, which has, you know, undefeatable smooth motion turned on. Mm. And look, I, I watched the finale, the final episodes of Stranger Things season four this way. No. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it made me realize that, you know, we are we are in a niche industry. We're in a niche situation here. Most of America does not know that they have watched this show the wrong way. Most of America does not know that this is not supposed to look like a video they, game. They want and, everything to look like uh, the days of our lives in 1987. They, Every, they do. Every, they do. Everything should look like that. And and it, as disappointing and as heartbreaking as it is, I'm sure for for those people to to realize that this is the way that their stuff is is going out into the world. Uh, I think it's time that. The customers out there, you know, you and me, if we stay in a hotel, there should be like a, a way to voice our 
dissatisfaction. So I think it's great when Tom Cruise it's does called, It's the called PSA. Twitter, man. Just go out on Twitter and complain <laughs> all the time. I, I, I really think you're right. We should come up with like a very clever hashtag. Yes, it needs to be said that the hotels in particular who force people into this, this uh, experience is doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong. And the television manufacturers enabling hotel chains to do this is anyway i'll get off my soapbox here but but this, wow. this essentially was my my short end my obsession this week was uh you know stranger things should not look like days of our lives they just Oof. it just should not that's rough that's a rough way to watch anything whenever i've been in a situation where i had to watch something in smooth scan i just turn it off and i i, I seem to recall uh, over a christmas uh vacation spending hours trying to get my in-laws tv to turn it off because it was just like madness inducing i there's almost i would almost rather it be too bright or too dark or too you know like the colors be Green, all goofy anything yeah yeah than smooth scan like it just there's nothing more uncinematic and at the same time james cameron swears it's uh that what we really want is you know 120 frames per second or whatever peter jackson too he also swore by it. ang lee there's a, several people out there who who believe that this is the future and this is better but yeah uh, you know what? I, I think of the people who care, of the people out there who care, uh, they're in the, the vast minority. Really, to be fair, really also, minority. by the way, I don't, I don't think James Cameron is saying everything should be viewed that way. I think James Cameron is saying his films should be viewed that way that he is making in that method, because that's something that that that's the artist's intention. So anyway, yeah, that's that's gross. I hate smooth scan. Okay, it's fine. the worst thing ever. I, I think that's the the one exception. Well, I still like I, I went and saw I, the I Hobbit. It's the, the evening news. It, it's it's sports. Yeah. It's I don't know. It, it's it's wrong though for I think for for narrative most narrative stories. I went and saw the right. Hobbit in in high frame rate, and and I wanted to stab out both eyes. I was like, I can't stand watching it like this. It's it's just ruining it. What it did was it took something that was cinematic and artistic and painterly, and and made it look like a community theater production of the Hobbit, where like you could you could see that. Ian McKellen was wearing contact lenses like the the resolution was really high and everything but everything just looked it it made it look faker I really hated it yeah I understand all right so Ben what's your uh short end this week what do you well, got going on? I'm gonna be a little repetitive for my last short end but since it's been a few weeks no one's gonna hopefully call me out on this too bad so a few weeks ago I was talking about Dolly the AI art making thing mm-hmm. and uh, since then uh, I've basically been non-stop goofing around with AI art making whenever I wasn't doing something that required my attention Dolly is awesome the newest Dolly which you can't really get on is amazing uh, but there's another one called mid journey that's shockingly great and as a goof i was like making up fake uh horror movies from the 70s so it was like 1978 lucio fulci a movie called zombies of wall street and it gave me and it gave me four movie posters all of which looked like a real lucio fulci movie poster on on dolly mini the resolution especially on faces is not that great and supposedly they're working on it and it's going to be better and Dolly 2 if you can see stuff that's been done in Dolly 2 is unbelievably amazing but Mid Journey is something that is uh, also still kind of in a beta form but you can get an invite to it which I did and like here's the thing I don't think it replaces artists at all but in a weird way it's like a really cool brainstorming tool like if you come up with a weird idea and you want to like see what it could look like or play around with it and also just you know mostly goofy shit where you're like you know what would it look like you know if i uh 
had Catherine Hepburn eating a, a corn dog. Like it'll it'll whip that up for you. And uh, I was posting so many of these things on social media that one of my friends texted me and was like, "Hey, we're all worried about you, you, you know." And also, we don't really like looking at this because me being me, I was like, uh, "What would it look like if uh, termite larvae were uh, hatching in your eyes?" You know, like I was I was doing really super gross out stuff. So I created a Facebook group called Protecting Your Friends from AI Art. And uh, a bunch of uh, like-minded people like myself and anyone who's listening to this is welcome to join it, whether you just want to be a looky-loo and see what we're doing or whether you want to make your own. And uh, it's just interesting to see the different stuff that people come up with this. And we are starting to see people using it. Somebody used it to make a movie, like a La Jate kind of movie where it was all still images. And it was pretty interesting. And uh, Cinecom.net, which is a a YouTube page that kind of teaches people how to make movies, did a whole thing about using mid-journey images and animating them and like putting putting themselves into the mid-journey images because you can do just shockingly beautiful stuff in mid-journey. I've certainly found ways to break it, like where I'm asking it for too much and it won't give me what I want. But it gives you, if you are patient with it, you can just get stuff that looks unbelievably amazing and also in any style like i was like you know evil robots invade california in 1917 and it, uh, in the style of i forget the name of the photographer but i looked up a famous war photographer who did world war one photos and it did it it like made photos that looked like his photos that had evil robots coming into california and it looked very very real i wonder where it ends up like i wonder you know like part of me is like well does this mean you know are we going to use this instead of storyboards one day Maybe I find it as a tool to be rather imprecise. There's a movie I'm trying to get made, and I was like, I'm going to try and make some custom uh, concept art for this movie using uh, Mid Journey. And uh, I found it next to impossible to get what I wanted. Like, it, it was really, really hard. And what I wanted was not that complicated. It involved someone who was a zombie and someone who was not a zombie in the same shot. And as soon as you said, Healthy human doctor treating zombie, it would make them both zombies. It just couldn't, it, it would overload its circuits to have one zombie and one non-zombie in the shot. And uh, uh, it can be a little frustrating when you start because it runs in Discord. So you need to have a Discord account. And then if you get the free account, you're in like a newbie channel and there's like, you're watching everybody else's suggestions fly by and it's easy to lose yours. But as soon as you move to the $10 a month version of it, you can just send your suggestions to the discord bot and it will put them only in your channel and you don't have to worry about seeing what other people are doing but it's not as uncanny valley a thing as i might have imagined like especially if you ask for something that looks like a painting like i uh, i was doing uh i was just thinking about the hp lovecraft story at the mountains of madness so i typed in at the mountains of madness and it you know that's the whole prompt like it, it's it's not doing the hp lovecraft story it's making the mountains of madness whatever the ai is figuring it out and it gives you four iterations and you can have them do four new iterations if you don't like it or you can do variations on one if you like one in particular and uh it just looked beautiful i mean like it, a lot of it looks like something you would like happily print out and, and hang on your wall and again i on, on the one hand i do go like is this maybe an end of a kind of art because like, uh, you know, the kind of art that would be on the wall at the Hyatt, for instance, you know, they had to pay an artist to create that stuff. But, you know, with Midjourney, <clears throat> they didn't have to pay anyone except for it, the uh, the robot. Yeah. The, if, yeah. If you're making a lot of money off of it, Midjourney wants you can't sell it. But like, you know, I, I, I was like uh, Jay Leno made of bacon and it like did a Jay Leno made of bacon that I was like, oh, yeah, I could put that on a T-shirt. I don't know that I would sell a billion of them, but I, you know, might sell 
20 of them you know yeah you could use it to design stuff like that and it it actually in a weird way does kind of call into you know it's basically taking the 10,000 hours out of being an artist but also like you don't have any control <laughs> like you have no control over what it does so uh you know it's literally scouring all the images online ever so, uh, you know, uh, my, my buddy Graham Skipper did one that was like Godzilla at, at the World's Fair in 1958 or something like that. And it like made these really realistic looking black and white photographs of Godzilla. It was just shockingly good. Like I was like, wow, that's that's great. But, um, you know, whenever again, whenever I try and turn it towards like, oh, I have a really specific Im- image in mind. It's not going to do it. I I wanted to do. Uh, for my needs a werewolf thing for uh, for the Fourth of July, I wanted to do werewolves raising the flag at Iwo Jima. I thought that's what could be more patriotic than that. And <laughs> for you, uh, nothing. I I spent like eh, not the end of the world, but I probably spent like an hour or so trying to figure out how to do it, including like there's ways that you can add still images as prompts, and it just never got it. And I was like, okay, yeah, like that that it's maybe a lost cause now you know does the next iteration of this get better at it i'm sure it just keeps getting better and better and better but the other thing about it that i keep reminding myself too is like it's only derivative of what has been so if you wanted a painting of barack obama that looked like it was painted by basquiat you could do that but you couldn't do it from a painter that has never existed you couldn't do a completely unique thing that no one had ever seen before you need to have the body of Basquiat's work to reference to kind of make something that looks like something else so you know in my mind it really doesn't replace it will never replace a certain kind of art but anyway uh, that's been my serious non-stop pet obsession I encourage anyone on who's on Facebook to check out protecting your friends from AI art and uh, you'll see uh, cream of tarantula soup and some of my other things that I've done, but also like a lot of other people. My friend uh, and film school buddy John Barley did "Hungry Eyes," like the song. Oh, mm. uh, Chef's Kiss, one of the best looking pieces of AI art I've ever seen. Uh, uh, you know, uh, a friend of mine actually subscribes to an, an AI art engine that I don't believe it's Midjourney. I believe it's another one, uh, and he's been doing it for for for. I guess probably the better part of a year now he's done, he does the, you know, dream interpretation, which I think is, is, is awesome. And he, he types in the stuff from his dreams and he's like, doesn't usually get it, but you know, uh, versus him spending hours trying to figure out how to visualize something that he dreamt the night before he can put it in there and get sort of a, you know, a reminiscent sort of thing from it, which, uh, with that I think is very clever. And he puts them in a folder and kind of archives and, you know, dream yeah. from April 7th. And yeah, that's, that's interesting. I'd, I'd love to know which one he uses. Yeah, uh, I can't recall off the top of my head. Otherwise, I'd share it with everybody. Also, like if if anyone's listening to this and they'd like to mess around with AI art and they don't really want to invest any real time or money, I would suggest going to crayon.com. That's C-R-A-I-Y-O-N.com. And that will give you access to Dolly Mini and you can just punch in whatever you want. It'll give you uh, uh, nine different ideas. Usually, if it's something where there's a person's face involved, it uh, for some reason it screws up faces a little bit. But they they say they're working on that, so maybe it'll be better by the time you hear this. All right, so Ben, I think that just about does it. Uh, where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you outside well, of this podcast? <laughs> outside of protecting your friends from AI art and needs a werewolf, my uh, <laughs> my Facebook group uh, game is really increased lately. It really uh, has. I, I would say uh, first and foremost, go to benrock.com. Uh, it still sounds weird to say it. I own benrock.com. So uh, go there and you can find my social media stuff. You can check out my reel. 
Uh, Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Uh, you know, reach out if you are building a studio. We just we just built one for some very nice people in, in Burbank and uh, installed a grid and that sort of thing or uh, whatever. Whatever you, whatever your, you know, camera equipment, lighting equipment, production equipment needs are, reach out to us at Hot Rod Cameras and either myself or someone else can fulfill those equipment dreams. So, Ilya, uh, who should we thank this week? Hey, let's thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody, springing back from the uh, hiatus we had of a couple weeks now with uh, Vengeance and uh, lining up all kinds of stuff for us here for the podcast. Excellent. Let's also thank Ben Katz, Editing Wiz, who is, uh, we're not making his life easy because we're throwing a couple episodes at him right in a row. That's right. And let's thank Kay Zalatrachi, uh, you know, gentleman who composed all the music that you heard in this show and most every episode of uh, this podcast and uh, also outstanding colorist and uh, you know, man's man, ladies, man, man about town. He can, uh, he can make it happen. He can check out his music at musicbyks.com and hire him to score your next project. I'm serious. He's an amazing composer. I have hired K's several times when I had a choice of who to hire. <laughs> yeah. I, yes, you have. And, and, and always had excellent, excellent results. So, uh, Zaben, I think that just about does it. Uh, any final words? No. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.